This is The Michael Bryan Show. Hi everyone, welcome back to the show and today I'm joined with Rick Schnabel who is an expert on brain and human behaviour and his, his own talk show as well which is What's On Your Mind and he specialises in all things mind and brain. So he's a six time international best selling author on the mind as well as well as an NLP trainer. So Rick, thanks for being a guest on the show. You're most welcome Michael, it's a joy to be here, thank you. And one of the main things that really interests me is how experts actually got into the field. Because while NLP is quite popular, everyone has their own particular way that they feel like NLP is is the way to go for them. So what was your story? How did you get started? I, I got started actually at a very, very young age. Um... Uh, when I was seven years old, I used to go to, I got my library card, used to go to the library with regularity. And then I got, I found myself at a point that I got tired of the children's books. And I found myself in the psychology area. And uh, I started getting, taking out all these psychology books. Now, I can't claim to know that I fully understood every single concept I was reading, but it certainly fascinated me to no end because I've always been interested in how does the mind work? How, you know, how do we think? But more so, why are there some people that find success really easy and some people find success really, really hard? And I've always been curious about that, which ultimately led me to study life coaching and then psychology and then neuro-linguistic programming and a raft of other things. I, I've never, ever stopped learning. And But the, the big shift for me, the big thing that really made such a huge difference for me was that, you know, I was one of the very first born in our family in Australia. Uh, my family came from Germany and uh, it was around the 60s. So there was still a lot of residue from the Second World War and there was a lot of racism and there was a lot of, um, a lot of negativity. And uh, there were fights in the schoolyard and all that sort of jazz and I became the centre of many of them. And, uh, and I felt throughout a lot of my life that I was disadvantaged and my parents were poor and uh, I saw the contrast of who I was and all my friends around me and I could see that I was the disadvantaged one. So I've always had this thought about what is the difference between people who can make a lot of money and people who seem to struggle. And I was the struggler, you know, I was the one struggling until I learned neuro-linguistic programming and I started to realize how influential your beliefs are and how influential your upbringing and all the concepts that you hold such as an identity. And I could remember I found myself at this one particular moment in my life where I was doing really badly. I was down to my last $27. And I mean, full stop. That was it. That was all I had in my pocket, in my bank, $27. Yeah. And I had a $70,000 debt. 
and I had a mortgage and I was actually at a point where we were seriously looking at being becoming homeless. And what was worse is I had a wife and just we just had our first child. And frankly, I was freaking out. I just thought, oh, my God, this is the worst nightmare I could ever imagine. But there was a part of me that actually expected myself to get into a predicament like that. And that's what worried me more. And uh, so it was the neuro-linguistic programming that the study and also the coaching that I was getting where my coach made me realize that my financial predicament had everything to do with my belief system, had everything to do with my identity and who I was. And within a period of three months, I went from being the worst salesperson in the organization I was working in at the time to becoming the best and making huge amounts of money. And my whole world changed. It's never been the same. So I became a major advocate for neuro-linguistic programming and coaching and mentoring and, and have been doing ever since, helping other people to increase their incomes. Sometimes the adversity that people go through can cause them to almost get more defensive or they hold on to their past a lot more when they overcome adversity in a, almost like a safety mechanism. But in your case, your adversity has caused you to be more curious and be more open-minded as opposed to the flip side. How do you think that happened? How do you think you took that from your experience, the curiosity, the learning, the improvement versus the total opposite to that? Um, I had a strange experience when when I was growing up as a child. Um. I got interviewed uh, from a magazine recently about this. This is me coming out. And uh, I used to see ghosts. I actually used to see ghosts in my bedroom. And, and uh, the thing that I, I, I got very curious about this, I started visiting people who believed in ghosts. I started, I started visiting clairvoyance and psychics and people like that. And I can remember this one lady in Western Australia who I ended up spending a lot of time with her talking about these things because she used to see ghosts too. And she said, and she started educating me on, you know, this idea, whether you believe it or not, it's irrelevant, but I believed that there is this veil that exists between this world and the next. Now, it was this veil, this idea that started getting me thinking that I believe we're here for a bigger reason. I believe that we're here to actually learn from our challenges, and that's why we have them in the first place. And I believe that we're here to evolve humanity, to evolve ourselves to such a degree that we start respecting and understanding our soul, our spirit. And I think it was always that, that I, I used to always believe that there was something that I didn't know that should I know it was going to totally change my world. And even though my world wasn't that great and it was very at a disadvantage, there was still that other side of me that 
felt that if I really learned from this, I could not only help myself, but I could help other people. So I think that was the difference. Are you able to share what the ghosts were like? Are you clear enough on the, the experience to be able to share that? There's, there was all sorts of different ghosts. Um, I even weirdly, I remember being on holidays as a kid and I remember my grandmother really wanted to come on holidays and she was getting really, really old. She was, she was about 85 years old and she had a lot of health challenges and the family decided not to bring her on holidays because it was going to be a road trip. And I was in an annex connected to a caravan sleeping and something just woke me up. And then I looked automatically towards the door of the caravan and it was my grandmother that was coming down the steps and she was in spirit. And I'd ne I never thought that that was possible. I thought you only are a ghost when you're passed on, but obviously that's not the case. So, um, so I saw that I saw her there and I remember when this magazine wanted to interview me about all my ghost, um, you know, sightings as a child and as an adult, but there was a, when I was 17, um, I saw a ghost that scared the crap out of me. And it was a, it was a guy that just appeared and just kind of was standing and I had a mattress which was laying on the floor at the time because my aunt was visiting and she was in my bedroom. And so I'm in this spare bedroom and I just look up and I see this guy. Now, I don't know whether you can ever remember a series called National Velvet. And uh, there was a guy who was the jockey and he was an English guy. And this ghost looked like that guy. And he had, he had a little cap, he had jodhpurs on, he had a feral pattern uh, vest, he had, he had braces, and I could see this really, really clearly. And I remember the magazine said to me, can you actually find somewhere on the internet a picture of what this guy, what a ghost looks like? And I went searching every, I thought it was going to be so easy, but in fact, it was so hard to try to find a picture of what I saw. The only way I can describe it, it's a little bit like, a, you know, someone just chucks talcum powder in the air and where the talcum powder doesn't land is the dark areas. You know, it, it's like the dark defined shadowy areas, but the areas of highlight where light is hitting is where there's larger concentrations of talcum powder. And it was a little bit like that. You can see through them, um, but you can't always completely see through them, you know, particularly in the whiter areas. So this guy was just standing there and then all of a sudden he started to raise. He started to just float. He didn't move at all, but he just started to float up. And then he got to the ceiling and it was like he didn't have a skeletal system. He just bent. And then he was, he was perpendicular to the ceiling and then he just came straight for my head. And, you know, of course, I was incredibly brave, not. I put <laughs> the blankets 
straight over my head. I freaked out. And, uh, and then, then I heard in my head, he's going to be right in front of your face. You're going to pull the blankets down and he's going to be right there in front of your face. So I was building up the courage to pull the blankets down and I was going to ask him a question and the question was going to be, why are you here? And um, when I pulled the blankets down, he completely disappeared. He was gone. He wasn't there. But from that point on, I completely shut down seeing ghosts from 17 until I was 42. So I never, ever saw another ghost between 17 and 42 until I got some coaching around it. And then all of a sudden I started seeing them again, you know, but um, they are certainly the, uh, the weirdest experience and, and a little bit frightening. I don't think you can ever prepare yourself for seeing them. I can, I can completely imagine that as well. Like having the experience that essentially changes almost everything for you as well like if you imagine ghosts being real it's like what what else is real what else is possible and i find that really fascinating when we really dive into something and we're shown a glimpse into the potential for it which includes the mind as well like there's a lot of weirdness around the brain and neuroscience and and how the the brain interacts with the mind and all of that is very fascinating to me and how it all interlinks and becomes what we call life and reality and all the things that that come along with that what's been some of the more fascinating things that you found or that you've discovered when it comes to how the mind works the thing um the 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 first idea that jumps into my head is uh, is a client that came to see me for smoking. And it was something that I specialized in in the early days and I was helping lots and lots of people stop smoking. And I can remember this gentleman said to me, he was, he was thin as a rake, he wasn't a big guy, but he had this fear that when he finished smoking that he would eat and eat and eat and put on weight. So he said an unusual thing to me. He said, can you turn off my taste buds. And I said, for a start, I've never done that. So I can't say I can, (laughs) but my question to you is why would you want me to turn off your taste buds? And he said, well, I'm worried that I'm going to overeat and I'm going to put on weight. And, and he said, I really want you to do it if you could do it. And I said, look, I think I know how I could do it because the truth is that all your taste is built over time and it's stored in your brain. Actually, even though your taste buds are on your tongue, where you store taste is in your brain. So theoretically, I believe I can turn off your taste buds. So let's give it a go. And I said, but before we do this, I just want to say one more time. Do you really want to do this? Because my guess is you're going to call me back if this works and you're going to say, please, can you turn my taste buds back on? And he said, he said, if that happens, I'll do that. And so what I did is I did this technique and the technique is based on what we call submodalities. Now, how you experience you 
is you see you, you hear you, you smell you, you taste you, you feel you, and you are you. And these are your senses. This is how we become everything that we are. It's based on our senses. So once you know that, you can actually change how a person senses themselves by changing what we call the modalities, the visuals, the pictures, the sounds, the feelings, the self-talk, all of that. And you can change the sub-modalities. So in other words, if I got you right now, like what's, what's your favourite food? What's your favourite food without a, out a doubt, Michael? Mine is probably, if I had to guess, which those that are listening that know that I'm diabetic are going to probably shoot me for this, but <laughs> um, my favourite food is probably either cherry bakewell tarts or the Battenberg cakes, which I know everyone's going to hate me now, but uh, that's the truth. <laughs> okay, so so the Battenberg cakes, let's, let's choose those, yeah? So what I want you to do, if it's okay with you, I'm going to get you to close your eyes and I want you to just tell me the first picture that springs to mind when you think of the Battenberg cakes. So what's the first picture that springs to mind? It's the colours. So it's the sort of the, the quadrants of the cake. It's the colours of the sponge. Okay, cool. So what I want you to describe the picture to me, is it black and white or is it colour? It's colour. Okay. Is the picture close to you or is it a little bit further away from you? Funnily enough, it's probably arm's length away if I had to put a distance on it. Cool, awesome. And what would be the size of the picture if you could describe it in a size? It's probably about the size of the cake. So it's kind of like as if I'm walking past it in the shop. It's about the size that I would actually grab out and, and get one. Yeah. Okay, cool. So this particular picture, where do you feel it in your body when you look at this particular picture? What's the first place that springs to mind? It's probably around my quad area, but I can feel like it's rising towards my stomach. Okay, so, so it's in your quarter area, rising towards your stomach. Yeah. Okay, cool. So what I want you to do right now is calibrate your desire for that particular cake from zero to 10. Zero, no way, Jose. 10 is, oh, yes, bring it on now. So what would be the first number that you would give your desire for that cake right now? If I actually picture it, it's probably like a 10. Like no matter how much willpower I have, I'd walk past it and go, I could murder one of those or five. <laughs> okay, cool. So what I'm going to get you to do is I'm going to get you to change the qualities of the picture and notice how it changes your desire for the cake. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to get you now to imagine that picture, which was color, and I want you to turn it black and white. So in your mind, turn it black and white. Okay. And now what I'd like you to do is make it much, much smaller. Make the picture about the size of a postage stamp. And now send it much, much further away.
Okay, I can I can picture myself doing that. Okay, now what I want you to notice is where do you feel it in your body now? Strangely, it doesn't really feel anywhere. Like it, it almost like I can see it and it doesn't really affect me physically. Okay, excellent. Now what I'd like you to do is calibrate your desire for the cake now. And tell me, has it changed? Yeah, it's... I'd probably say it was about two or three. I'd probably walk past it and wouldn't think anything of it. I think it was just like any other any other food on the shelf, so to speak. Wow. Two or three from 10. So that's had an 80, 70 to 80% shift in your desire for that cake. So essentially what we've done is we've changed the submodalities of how you code and store that concept of that cake in your brain that connects to your taste buds that connects to your nervous system that connects to all the associations you have with that cake so when we change the pictures we actually change all those things and that's exactly what i did with this gentleman with his taste buds and he he did come back and he came back i can't remember how soon it was, but I'm pretty sure it was fairly soon. It was like about three or four weeks from memory. And he came back and he said, and I said to him, why, why did you come back? And he said, because my best friend took me out to a steak place. And he said, the steak tasted like cardboard. And he said, wow. this red wine was amazing. And he, <laughs> and, and the guy said, frankly, it tasted like cordial. Right. You know, it, it was a it was a real full bodied Shiraz, and he said it, it was like a Pinot Cordial, and he wow. he said that made me decide that I want to turn my taste buds back on, but that really amazed me. It amazed me for the fact that I began to realize once you understand how the brain works, you can start to utilize different neuro-linguistic programming type tools to create different identities, different ideas, different concepts within yourself to be able to be more ideal towards more of what you want and less of what you don't want. What I'd be curious to hear from yourself is how does that transfer to real life? If we use the Battenberger's example, right, one of my vices, yeah. When I walk past it, it isn't in black and white and a million miles away in the size of a potted stamp. When I walk past it in the shop, it's brightly coloured, it's staring at me, talking to me, it feels like, saying, go on, you want five, at least five, come on, have some. <laughs> so it, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, okay, that works great from a desire to have the cake when... I've got an alternative maybe, so it changes my choices initially. Maybe I don't go down that aisle in the shop because I don't have the background desire to begin with. Maybe I pick something else so I never get exposed to the temptation to a certain extent. But let's say for some reason it's near something that is healthier, it's near something that's on my shopping list and I walk past it because I'm going to that thing and then I pass the cake. Is then a very real experience that I've got to deal with in a way in the moment, regardless of my desire for it, 
I walk past it, which could essentially trigger it while I'm walking past it. And all of the NLP, black and white, far off into the distance, that from first pass, in you know, just thinking out loud, that would not have as much of an impact because the reality is very different. The thing that you have to understand is a little bit like chicken and the egg, but it is very specific in that how you have the desire in the first place is not because of how it's presented or the lights on it or the colour or any of those sorts of things. It's because at some point in your life you have had a taste of it and it sent a shot of hormones through your body which basically said, hmm, this is good. I want to keep having this. So that has now formed a neurological pathway in your brain that somewhere within your brain, it has catalogued the experience. Now, fundamentally, there are four things that your brain does without thinking. One of those things is your brain will always do what it thinks you want. Whether it's good for you or not is irrelevant. It's about want. And so your brain has coded and stored that it wants that cake. Now, the little piece that we did was just changed your desire for it a little bit in that moment. But if you wanted to change it permanently and never eat that cake ever again, then what you've got to be able to do is you've got to be able to turn that pleasure button off and you've got to turn the pain button on. So that, that process that I took you through, if we added an extra step in that process, so if I got you to think about something that maybe has the texture of that cake, maybe looks a bit like that cake, but you would never, ever, ever eat that thing like it could almost kill you if you did, then what we could actually do is get the submodalities of that thing and get the submodalities of the cake and then swap them over so that your brain, when it thinks about the cake, instead it will think, I'm going to die. And if we are successful in achieving that, then you won't go near that cake ever again. So that's, uh, that's one way that you can actually change behavior. So the things that we have to understand about the brain is that it'll, it will always do what you want. The other thing that we have to know about the brain is the brain works in words and pictures. So if we put different pictures in there, different words in there, you can start having a different experience. The third thing that we have to understand is the brain loves patterns. It will always go with the known and it will resist the unknown. So if we can get something that is unknown and we can start to familiarize your brain with it and keep running it as a pattern, you know, some people talk about visualizations, for example, is one way to keep running a new pattern. Eventually your brain will get to a point that it will see something that you've never done before as being able to be something that you could do now. 
and then it could run a whole new pattern. A, a good example of that is there was a experiment that was done, I think it was in 1985 at the Soviet Winter Olympics. And what they did, they were risk averse enough to grab their athletes and split them into four groups. And what they did is each of those groups had visualization combined with actual practical practice. So what they did is group number one did no visualization whatsoever, just constant practice for as many hours as they did each day, they just did practice. Group number two, what they did is they gave them 25% visualization and 75% practice. Group number three was 50-50. Group number four was completely different. Group number four, they visualized for 75% of the time and practiced for 25% of the time. The interesting thing though, when they finished the Olympics, the group that got the most medals in the tally overall was the fourth group, the group that practiced right. the less mm -hmm. but visualized the most because they kept rehearsing over and over. There's a lot of people that say practice makes perfect, but that's absolutely untrue. Perfect practice makes perfect. Because if you're practicing something incorrectly, no matter how often you practice it, you're still going to do a terrible job of it. For example, I'm a surfer. Now, one thing that you've got to do when you are surfing and learning to surf is a lot of surfers get it wrong by they do imperfect practice. They paddle for the wave. They put their hands on the rails. They put their knees on the board. And then they get up slowly until they get right up into their feet. You've got, if you want to do this well, you've got to stop putting your knees on the board. You just got to go straight up onto your feet immediately. That's perfect practice. And the only way to do that is to keep rehearsing it over and over in your head because catching a wave happens so fast that you can't consciously go through that process of just jumping to your feet without some sort of level of rehearsal in your brain. Does that make sense? It does, but then does that not speak to, if you're visualizing, so if you're visualizing the practice as opposed to doing it, does that not imply then that you don't actually have to do the practice? You just have to visualize yourself doing it, but you could be lying down. So how does that affect things like, coordination and your ability to actually do it when the time comes yeah well the thing that ultimately is going to be the final test is the actual practical uh application of it so at some point you do have to get on a surfboard it's a little bit like reading a book about how to ride a bike you know you, you're not really going to get to be able to ride a bike because there's a major risk that you must take which is putting one foot on the pedal and taking the other foot off the ground, which means that immediately you've got to start pedaling or you're going to fall over. So you have to be able to go through that test of gravity to be able to ride a bike, just like you have to be able to get in the water with a surfboard to be able to ride it. 
Because the truth is there are so many things moving in the water. You know, there's the current, the waves, you, a whole host of things that are moving in the water. And that's going to be the acid test. That's going to be the actual test that tells you that your visualization has actually worked, but you actually have to bring it into practical form. It's a little bit like the, uh, the Russian group. They had to be able to uh, at least put in some level of practice in order to do the exercise. You know, I, I don't believe the visualization alone will actually get you there. I really believe that you've got to put some practice in. How does that work when, let's say, I mean, it depends on what you're visualizing, I'm sure. Like if you were to visualize yourself in competition, that would likely transfer over to actual competition versus just practice sessions. Am I right in saying that? Yeah, most definitely. So do you include things like pressure and stress or responsibility i guess if you're surfing under pressure does the visualization include that do you have an actual reaction and a response to the visualizing like let's say you visualize yourself in competition do you feel the pressure while you're visualizing it as opposed to actually in that situation the the thing that's really critical and uh, there was a lady that I taught many years ago who started working with Olympic athletes, you know, swimmers. And one of the things that's really, really important is visualization sounds like it is very much about pictures and like a movie rehearsing through some sort of film in your mind. But it's never just in isolation. One of the things that's really key and critical is that we don't just bring our visual quadrant into play because that's only going to be part of our brain because there's only a part of our brain that deals with our visuals. What we also have to be able to do is we have to be able to hear something as well. We also have to be able to feel something as well. And to be able to even speak in our own brain as we're going through the experience that gives us essentially four elements. If we add a gustatory and an olfactory as well, now we've got our six senses all at play. And then, of course, when we talk about pressure, putting ourselves in that pressure moment, a really good thing to do is to begin to shift that pressure and move that pressure from being perceived as being competition or stress or pressure and reframe it and move it so our brain can accept it, and that is to turn it into pleasure, turn it into excitement, turn it into exhilaration. You know, and part of that can be things like seeing yourself at the end of the process having achieved it and what comes then. So, for example, it can be applause. It could be gold medal. It could be, you know, some particular achievement, a group of people saying, fantastic, you did amazingly. And so it really begs into the reason that we do what we do. And most often the reason that we do what we do is often what we 
is not often what we think it is, like getting that trophy or getting the bonus or getting, you know, some particular accolade. Quite often what is more important to humanity, is more important to people, is what other people think of us having achieved it. You know, is the applause, is the slap on the back, you know, is the shaking of the hand, is the respect that we get. And a lot of these kind of buy into our motivators, you know, like we've got this invisible level of words that run through our neurology, which are motivators, things that actually really, really, really motivate us. And the more we know about ourselves, the more we know what are the very things that motivate us, the more we know ourselves and the more we can extract success out of ourselves because we know how to frame it and rehearse it and see it from the beginning, middle, and the end so that it's a full story. And we are unrelenting because the outcome is so compelling. So it's a real key piece. Whenever you're working with someone to help them to achieve, you've got to know their triggers. You've got to know what are their, what are their words, what, what really motivates them. It sounds to me like you can use the practice that you've outlined there and the things that you taught me through earlier on they can work together. Am I right in saying that? And how do you utilize them both? Well, one way to utilize them both is that uh, let's say, let's say for instance, what you've got. um, Oh, I'll give you a classic example. I'm working with a gentleman at the moment who's been an alcoholic for 30 years. So he came to see me and he said, I've heard you're the guy who can help me get through this. And I said, okay, fine. Let's find out as much as we can about you first before we find out what the problem is. And so one of the real key pieces in our success with him is that his wife is so important in achieving success. He doesn't want to let her down, even though he feels like he's letting her down by not being able to handle alcohol. Now, One of the things that we did is a little bit like that process that I did with you, but in more detail. And we go really, really deep in, we call it a like to dislike. So we get the alcohol and then we get something that he would never, ever drink, but it looks the same color as the alcohol. It seems to have the same viscosity as the alcohol. And then we change it neurologically in his brain. So we turn it from a like to a dislike. And then when a person is going through that process, typically they have their eyes closed because it's much, much easier to imagine things that aren't there in front of you with your eyes closed. So he's got his eyes closed. So the next thing that I do is I now run him through a process where I run it over a three-time pattern. What I mean by a three-time pattern is we typically learn in threes. So we call it a three-time convincer. So while his eyes are closed, I get him to imagine that after a day, he has come to his usual trigger, which it's the end of work. 
he goes to the fridge or the bar and he either grabs a scotch or a beer and I get him to go there, but instead of seeing the scotch or the beer, he sees the thing which was the thing that we've recoded in his brain that he would never, ever want to drink. It was the thing that we used in the like to dislike. Then the next part of the process is he then imagines himself turning to his wife and saying, I can do this. And she see, he sees her with a big smile on her face, looking at him like he is the best man on the planet. She has married the right man. He's got strength. He's got resolve. He can do this. So, so what we've done is we've gone through kind of like a visual rehearsal connected with a couple of triggers that normally have him going into the drinking behavior. So then what we do is we do that three times. So we do it again. We go, okay, now I want you to see yourself a week from now. It's been a whole week and you've looked at that fridge and you've looked at that bottle and you say to yourself, no, that's not me anymore. And you now begin to look at your wife and you notice how much respect she has in you. You notice how she's looking at you now. She's looking at you differently. Her level of respect has increased enormously. You know, and you're, you're starting to add this story that, is attached to all of this. And then you do it again. It is now a month and you begin to feel so proud of yourself that you've nailed this, you've done this, you can do this. And then you add, if you can do this, imagine what else you can do. Mm. And so basically what you're running is you're running a rehearsal, a visual rehearsal through someone's brain. Now, you may call that visualization, you may call it meditation, you may even call it hypnosis. But essentially what you're doing is you're now running new programs over and across the old programs. So the old programs, which were the triggers of the alcohol, you are now running over them. And now they are seeing their life without alcohol. And so that can be hugely effective. But there are equally sometimes the thing that we have to respect, though, is sometimes these patterns and problems might have trauma associated with them, might have a lot of baggage in the past, a lot of identity elements around it as well. So, you know, working with someone, you know, with just one process doesn't always cut it. You've often, I've found that you've often, like I've been doing this almost for 20 years now, and I've found that you've just got to keep going and running different programs and processes over the top of a problem until the problem is completely gone. You know, because if you don't get sometimes the trauma, your programs and, and processes can be very sophisticated, but so is emotion. And if you don't get into that emotion and you don't unwind it, then you could not get rid of the problem. So you've got to take quite a holistic approach. The idea of trauma and identity, as you mentioned there, that makes me think of emotion and how 
if you are dealing with trauma, obviously it's a very emotional thing and identity seems like you'd get more emotional the more you are in, I guess, conflict with your identity or something that's a contradiction to your identity. And it makes me think that the deeper you go and the further you get into it, you're going to get more emotional. But then I've heard that emotions, one of the strongest and quickest ways that we can actually embed something into our brain as a habit or something that we do or don't want to do because of how emotional we get. How do you balance those things? How do you integrate the idea of emotion and hopefully, for want of a better expression, use it to help us as opposed to hinder us? Well, emotion is one of the key motivators. I mean, we look at the word motive and we put an E in front of it and now we get an emotive. And the truth is that when we can harness our emotions, we can actually move somebody and we can move them away from behavior that isn't serving them, for, for instance. So to, I think, in this level work, if you're not dealing with emotions, you're not getting change because emotion is a very key piece. And if we leave emotion out of our work, then all we're getting is intellectual. And, you know, intellectual programs often never really get results. They sound good. And, you know, it sounds great that we could be this or do that. But until we actually can get into those emotions, we're not getting into the nervous system. And that's the key piece. Emotions trigger the nervous system. The nervous system is connected to our neural system. Our neural system, when it gets an emotion that runs through our neural system and then builds a synaptic connection, sends off those dendrites, starts pumping you know, hormones, electrical impulses through our brain, then that's how the signal is written. And that's a really important and very key piece. So we are emotional beings. We can't help it. You know, whenever I'm working with someone who has got a phobia, you know, these are very smart people. And they will often say to me, Rick, um, I know it just sounds ridiculous. I can't work it out. Uh, actually, let me give you an example. There was a gentleman who I was working with that had a spider phobia. And we, we were just finishing up working on something else. And we still had some time. And he said to me, he said, can you help me with something? And I said, sure. And he said, spiders. I freak out. Now, this is... This is not your average guy. This is a scientist. This is a very smart, intellectual man. And he said to me, he said, it, I hate it. I feel like a wimp. You know, I feel like a chicken. I feel like a coward. It really demeans my masculinity. Yeah. And, you know, he said, my wife is just as scared of them, but she laughs when she sees me react, you know, and, he said, I actually scream like, like a girl, like a young girl. I scream like a young girl when I see a spider. Oh. And he said, I can't stop it. 
So what he then said is he said, can you help me with that? And I said, sure. So what I did is I did this process where essentially what you do is you scramble the pattern. All phobias are tightly wound neural connections that you cannot make sense of. So what you do is you slow the process down, really slow it down. So I said to him, I want you to close your eyes. I want you to go back and remember a time that you saw a spider and tell me about it. So he started to describe a big huntsman on the wall. And he said, and he, and he started going really quickly and describing it all to me. And before we knew it, he was out the room, you know, not literally, but in his recollection. And then I said to him, now slow it down. I want to know what happens first. What's the trigger? Do you see something first? Do you hear something? Do you smell something, taste something, touch something, say something to yourself? What's the very first thing that tells you what's the trigger? And he said, the trigger is I see the spider. And I said, okay, so you see the spider. And I said, slow this down. Like if you could slow it down fraction of a second by fraction of a second, what happens next? And it's, it usually takes a while for a person to really recollect what they're doing because this is all unconscious. And so he then said, I can, he said, I take a breath. It's like, <gasps> I, I take a big breath. And that's where the scream comes out because I'm <gasps> doing that. And then I scream. And so I said, okay, so first you see the spider, then you <gasps> take a big breath. But I said, how do you know you take a breath? And he said, I feel it. I feel it. And I hear it. So that's called a synesthesia. It's two things happening at once. He can feel it and hear it. So, so what I'm doing is I'm recording visual, picture, kinesthetic, <gasps> auditory, ah, the scream. And then we went through the whole process until he got to the very end where he ran out the room. So that is his strategy, what we would call a phobic strategy. So now all I have to do is repeat his strategy exactly in the visual, auditory, kinesthetic, and all the other pieces exactly in that order, but change them and make them ridiculous. And so what that does is it's a little bit like, remember the old vinyl records? You put the needle down and it said Humpty Dumpty sat on the yeah. wall. And if I stop at that moment, your brain will go, and Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. Because the first part of the song is the trigger. It's the thing that fires off the whole song. So strategies are exactly the same thing. Phobias are exactly the same thing. It's a strategy. Starts off with a picture. You see the picture and bang, the strategy happens you know, as quick, as quick as anything. So what you do is you keep getting it wrong. So what happens is it's like you're scratching the record over and over again. And all of a sudden it goes, Baba black sheep, have you any wool? You know, and it changes the entire nature of the song or scrambles the strategy. Now, this guy 
came back to me in the next session, proud as punch. And he said, you're not going to believe this, Rick. And I said, what am I not going to believe? And he said, after that process, I saw a huntsman on the weekend. And I went up to it and I put my hands, I cut my hand behind it. And I put my other hand and cupped it in front of it. And I brought my hands closer and closer together until I got the spider in my hands and I walked it outside. My wife was freaking out when she saw what I had done. And she hardly would open the door for me. I had to convince her to open the door for me. And I went out and I opened my hands and I let the spider go on a tree. And he said, I would never do that. (laughs) But the thing that's really great about things like that is it elevates a person. It makes them realize that something that they were fearful of, now they're not fearful of it. And that became his story. He wanted to tell that story at every party to every person he knew. (laughs) And he felt so proud about it. You know, he felt like he was at a completely different place. So, you know, so essentially it's the emotion in it. You're absolutely right. It's the emotion in it and you've got to capture that emotion and you've got to redirect it and reuse that emotion because that's how you're going to write the new program. Programs get written with emotion. It's like, it's like if we have an accident, a car accident. You know, if you've ever been in a car accident, it's bloody loud. There's a lot of bang and crash and twisting metal and broken glass and skinning and and there's a lot of fulcrum going on there's a lot of pressure and tension and all of that and that's how we write trauma because the trauma gets written in our brain and it's actually the sign of a healthy brain it just actually says i never want that to happen ever ever again so i'm going to store that somewhere permanent so that if anything like that happens again, you're going to avoid it because I hate that. I don't ever want to be in an accident again, okay? You know, and, and that literally is trauma. It's actually a healthy brain. So what you've got to do is you've got to get in there, use the emotion and shift it and change it, you know, so that they're coding and storing it quite differently. Does that make sense? It does. And as we've officially opened the door to fears let me ask you rick is how valuable is fear to have how do we either avoid fear or move towards it what are some of the benefits and also i would be interested to hear if you've had any fears you've overcome recently yes i on on all fronts um there was a fear that that i had which essentially the fear that actually I'll tell you about an old fear first. I fell from a tree when I was seven years old and um, there was a branch that was sticking up and it speared me between my liver and my lung. And it was a nasty accident. Of course, I ended up in hospital, but what happened um, and this actually led me down the path of neuro-linguistic programming because I bought a home that was a, an old federation home that had 16-foot ceilings on it. And it was a beautiful home, 
but I couldn't stand on a chair because I had built a phobia of heights, a fear of heights. And room by room was starting to go dark because I wasn't, I couldn't change the light bulb. I couldn't get up to those 16 foot ceilings. I didn't want to because I'd freak out on the ladder and I thought I was going to fall, which is my brain telling me we've been in this situation before. Remember what happened last time. Don't ever do this again. So what I did is I read in a book at the time that if you can put yourself in the worst possible environment you could ever imagine yourself, that you can actually get over your fear. Now, by the way, I wouldn't recommend this. I actually went parachuting. And, uh, and by going parachuting, putting myself in the worst possible height extreme um, that I would get over. And I did, you know, and I jumped out of the plane. And um, when I landed, uh, I landed in the Indian Ocean. And uh, from that point on, I was so excited that I went parachuting again the following week. I went abseiling forwards, backwards. You know, the week after that, and uh, and I have no fear of heights whatsoever. Wow. So you can certainly do that, but the truth is that, you know, we're really only born with two fears. You know, so research tells us, you know, sudden noises, fear of falling. There are only two natural fears. All the rest of our fears, including spider phobias and stuff like that, they're all witnessed and experienced. Like, for example, in, in our house, I have two daughters and uh, when they were really little, you know, they used to say, oh, there's a spider in my room. And, and they used to say, oh, the spiders are so cute. They're so cute, which was cute. And, um, and I taught them to liberate the spiders by putting a jar over the top of them and then a piece of cardboard underneath and then take them out and then put them in the garden. So both of my daughters were born without the fear of spiders. You know, they would do the same thing. They would get the jar out because they saw me do it many, many times. But I remember we went away on a holiday at one point and my daughters stayed at my parents, uh, my actually my wife's parents. And uh, when they came back, or when we came back and we got the girls back home, they all of a sudden had this fear of spiders. And I thought, where did that come from? And, of course, one day I'm at the in-laws and my mother-in-law starts screaming and she gets some fly spray and she covers this spider in enough foam to fill a ship. And, and I went, that's where it came from. Because what they had seen is they had witnessed someone freaking out about spiders. Now, an adult will, of course, justify that behavior to a child. An adult's not going to say, well, the reason I did that is because I'm really, really scared. They'll instead tell them some story about how dangerous spiders are and how they can kill you just by looking at you with their eight eyes. You know, and, uh, and so that's how we often build our fears. We usually learn it from somebody else. What kind of changes do people get when they overcome fears? Have you, because you've experienced it with the heights, 
have you got other examples of people that have done similar and what kind of changes or improvements do you see from people? Well, um, one thing that we used to do a huge amount of work on was uh, we ran a program which was a public speaking program. And it was, it was often for, you know, we, we teach a lot of life coaches. And so it was often for life coaches because I used to say to a lot of our life coaches, I say, look, one of the best ways to promote yourself as a life coach is get up on stage, give some good value to an audience, you know, let them know what you know. And um, of course, public speaking is still, you know, noted as being the greatest fear, you know, that people have uh, as the number one fear. And so we, invented a process that we would do. And what we would do is one by one, the speakers would have to get up on stage and they would, they would build what we call an anchor before they got up on stage. We would send them out the room and they would work with a buddy. And what they had to do is in their mind, they had to remember a time in their lives where they were confident, where they were solid, where they were strong, and they had to remember a time like that. And their buddy, at the peak of the experience, had to punch them in the arm. So what they would do is they would do that three times. So they would remember another time that they were confident, that they were solid, that they were absolutely unstoppable. And then their buddy, again, would punch them in the arm. Now, what that does is that starts to build what we call an anchor. Like, for instance, if I put my thumb up right now, what does that, what does that represent? Good, more positive, I guess, yeah? Absolutely. The only reason you know that is because it's been done so many times that all someone has to do is put out their thumb and you go, oh, yeah, yeah, good. So that's what an anchor is. An anchor is something that you set into a neurology with repetition. So what we did is they would test their anchor. The first thing they would do once they got up on stage, their buddy had to punch them in the arm and we had to ask them, how do you feel when that happens? And if they would say, I feel solid, I feel confident, I feel good, we'd say, fantastic, awesome, your anchor is working. So now what we do is I would stand on one side of the stage next to the butcher paper with a marker and I would ask the person on stage, what are you scared of? You know, what are you really scared of? And they would say things like people ignoring me. So I would write up on the butcher paper, ignore him, ignore her. And they would say things like, call me an idiot. And I would put in quotes, idiot. So in other words, every single fear that that person would have, I would put on the butcher paper, which would be an instruction to the audience. So then the next part of the process is we, I would say, okay, give them a huge round of applause. Let's get the show on the road. And they would start getting up and doing a talk. Then one by one, the audience would follow the instructions on the butcher paper. And so they would say, you're an idiot. Get off the stage. Throw things at them. Walk out. Answer their phone. Ignore them. Do all that stuff. 
Now, when their buddy who set the anchor in the first place, when their buddy would see their chin quiver or see their eyes well up or start seeing any fear response or reaction, their job was to punch them in the arm and fire off the anchor. Now, what this does, psychologically, this confuses you because you are getting the worst nightmare you could ever imagine, but someone has punched your anchor and now you're feeling unstoppable, strong, confident. So that confuses your neurology. Your neurology will go with the strongest emotion. So if the anchor is stronger than the fear, then the person will then turn that into a positive experience and rewrite the history. So that's essentially how you can shift a person from full-blown fear to turn them into being confident, strong, grounded, and be able to do talks. And it's been successful for us since 2006. It's been a program that has helped so many thousands of people will be able to get up on stage now and do talks without having fear. Because fear is irrational, remember. So how can the people listening incorporate that? Is there like a anchors for dummies or a like how to do this from home, like a DIY way that people can take this away and use it themselves? The, the best way, if they're serious about really getting good at it, the best way is there is a course called NLP Practitioner Training. And that's where you really learn the full-bodied experience, where you understand and you learn the many layers of being able to really master neurolinguistic programming in your own life. Um, there is a lot of stuff on YouTube about things like anchoring and stuff like that. So they can certainly learn it, but if they really want to learn it and get very good at it, I recommend, highly recommend learning NLP practitioner and, and go with an accredited trainer. I would highly recommend because then that way, if they're accredited and you want to use it as a coach or you want to become a coach or something like that, you can actually turn it into a professional occupation if you wish. Right. Sounds good. So for those that are listening, I, I would recommend that you try to figure out how to confuse your, your emotions and the way that you take in information. Because according to Rick, it's definitely helpful. And if you're a public speaker or you want to be, then you've got to be able to overcome the fears, haven't you? Absolutely. I mean, if you think about it, you know, fears are probably the thing more than anything else that really limits us as people. Because if we were completely fearless, there would be nothing that we wouldn't do. Because most of the things that we don't do is usually based on the fact that we're scared of what, how we're going to look or sound or whether we're going to fall on our backsides or are we going to look stupid or are we going to, you know, just demean ourselves in some particular way. But if we have no fear of that, we would be able to do anything, absolutely anything. Well, this is a very fascinating conversation, to be fair, Rick. I thought I'd 
ask just before we round off the interview, if there's anything in particular that you want to share before we go, if you would kick yourself that you didn't get the chance to share it or talk about it or leave our listeners with it, then this is your chance to do that. Okay, cool. Um, I think one of the things that is really key in helping to be successful is opening up your mind to be able to expand what you think is possible. And I wrote a book many years ago. It's called A Richer Way to Think. And it's a book that I would recommend that if you want to expand what is possible in your life, it's a great book to be able to do that. And it it's chapter by chapter by chapter just keeps opening up your mindset about what you can achieve, what is actually possible. And I think that's a great start. Thanks so much for being a guest on the show. Those that are listening, feel free to subscribe, share the show, tell others, and also leave a review wherever you are listening in to your podcasts. Rick, thanks so much for being a guest on the show, and I look forward to keeping in touch. Thank you, Michael. I really, really appreciate you inviting me onto the show, and I hope I've been able to help. If you want to join a group of like-minded people that are all out to achieve their goals, their dreams, their aspirations, and they get the help and support from me and the other members, then my inner circle is for you. There's a link in the description for this episode to get two months free of the inner circle. So you set your membership up, you get two months free access. Hopefully I'll see you there and I look forward to helping you on your journey of achieving the life that you want.